Welcome back, everybody. Thanks very much for being here, and it's nice to have you with us. My name's Ted. I'll be your host today, and I am very pleased to be joined by Melissa Valdez. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for yeah. having me. Really nice to have you here. You're a fairly new member of the Partyverse 2. We just joined back in November 2022. This episode is likely coming out either right at the end of 2022 or it might be in early January. But regardless, it's all pretty recent here, just the last couple of months you've been part of the community. So uh, what do you think so far? Oh, it's been great. I have, was looking for some more engagement and like-minded individuals and, and non-like-minded individuals mm. that I could chat with at this phase in my life. And um, I've been really impressed with the diversity of talents and the diversity of thought that I found in the Puttyverse so far. Nice. Yeah. And that's uh, why the, the podcast is here, of course, to profile all these people too. So <laughs> Yeah, I've been enjoying. Yeah. And, and you're one of them. So uh, what, brought, what brought you to the group in the first place? I'm right now in a transition in my career, and so I was looking for some support in that space. I was also, well, I, I first heard about the Puttyverse to, to, and thought to join it was after I read Emily's book, How to Be Everything. And again, that was kind of based on my transition in my career. I'm trying to do a little bit of a pivot. And as I was reading it, you know, I, the different types of multi-potential light are introduced. You see group hug model followed mm. by the slash model and the Einstein model. And in each one, I was thinking, okay, maybe this is me. Maybe this is me. But then the fourth one, finally, I identified very strongly with the Phoenix model, okay. uh, where you uh, have this really intense focus for a time. For me, it's usually about two years. Mm. And then to start something new after that. So um, I'm currently in the rebirth phase of the Phoenix life cycle <laughs> and uh, was really eager to, to join the community for the support um, after learning about it through the book. Right. Do you find you were able, and maybe still, are able to get at least some of that support in kind of real life, people you know already? Or is it often the case is people, you know, we're surrounded by folks and, I mean, we love them, they love us, but they just don't really get it. What what kind of experience have you had? Yeah, yeah. I think I have a really great support network. I have mm. an excellent husband and, and I'm really close with my sister and my mom's wonderful. So I've been able to chat through a lot of my anxieties with them throughout the years. But I think as a multi-potentialite, as somebody who doesn't stick with the same thing, I'm not on a linear path, it's really hard for them to give me advice. They can be good listeners, and they are. But when I need someone who's been there, someone who's experienced what I've experienced, even just knowing that you're not alone, like that's a big important part of having support. And so finding my people was a really big part of, of joining the community. Yeah. So had you been kind of looking for that or uh, you just stumbled upon it really? Yeah, I think I just got really lucky that I picked up Emily's book at the right time. <laughs> and I think that, yeah, there may have been some other areas that I could have joined. Some other newsletters I follow have communities and things. And I'm really glad that I picked the, the Puttyverse. <laughs> nice. Yeah, cool. Well, let's talk about where you're at these days. Um, well, for starters, you're a fellow Canadian, so that's always nice. You're <laughs> you're over in Ontario. What have you been doing kind of the last couple of years for life, for work, you know, profession, career, things like that? For sure. Well, yeah, I was born and raised in Ontario near Detroit. If you're picturing the, the map of the U.S., most people are more familiar with that. We're a small town called Windsor right across the border. So it was really unique growing up in a border town. We kind of had the smaller town feel, about 250,000 people in my hometown. 
you know, big and small in some ways. Um, But right across the border, we had access to shopping and concerts and professional sports Mm. leagues and all of the things that come with the big city of Detroit. So that was really neat. I went to undergrad at the University of Windsor, studied physics, and then moved to Toronto for my master's degree at York University. And while I was there, my supervisor actually is part of the Alpha Collaboration, which is a research group out of CERN in Geneva, Switzerland. So that's the lab where they have the Large Hadron Collider ring and do really incredible fundamental physics research. So that was a really unique opportunity. And I, I lived in France for about three months total while I was researching there. And it, it was a really great experience, you know, going to the cafeteria and just next to you is Nobel Prize laureate. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> just a really unique space. And I met so many incredible people from all over the world. My research group was fairly small, about 40 scientists, but we had people from Iran and from the Netherlands and from Brazil and Canada and the US. And it was just really incredible to be in that environment, I think, to, to have that much exposure. I was pretty young. I was in my early 20s. But I, I realized while I was there that a career in research probably wasn't going to be for me. Mm. So at the same time of having this awesome experience, I was also thinking, oh boy, what's next if it's not this? So I was really heavily involved with science outreach as a student, and I continued that in graduate school. And so when I finished my master's, I actually went into a full-time position at a national charitable organization here in Canada. They're called Let's Talk Science, or Parlons Science, because they also do French mm. outreach. And um, we bring hands-on activities to classrooms and community events. And so we engage children in kindergarten through grade 12. They also have a ton of programming for teachers to bring science into their classroom. It was just such an amazing organization, and and they're doing really great work and just a ton of really incredible mentors there for me as well. But after a few years, I was looking to use my technical background in physics a little bit more. So I rotated into a position in consulting. I took a job at IBM in their cognitive and analytics practice. So Hmm. people who were focused on artificial intelligence solutions, and I focused on conversational AI. So chatbots were a big part of what I was working on on my team. And we actually built a conversational assistant for Canada Post and Pure Later. (laughs) (laughs) And so if you need help with your packages, that was uh, my team that built those virtual assistants you might be talking to this this holiday season. (laughs) Now, is the point that they are supposed to seem like they're real people? Is that the impression that's supposed to be made? Or as the user, or is it like, well, I know I'm talking to a bot, but it's kind of like supposed to be a person? It's really a big part of the conversations that we have with our clients, right? We want to make sure that we're aligned with their brand. And oftentimes the advice that we give is you want to be authentic, but at the same time honest. And and, and, that's part of authenticity, right? So the branding was sometimes that you would give it a name or a personality maybe with an actual picture, like a cartoon face or something. And other times you would just use the company logo and it would just be you know, X's virtual assistant, hmm. but always we, we encouraged them to identify it as a virtual assistant. We didn't want them to pass it off as if it were a human doing yeah. the, the conversations. And then once you know you're talking to a virtual assistant, if you wanted to speak to a human, we always made sure there was an escalation path. Okay. And were you involved in tracking the results, the experience, maybe the success of it? Definitely. Uh, once it went into production, we followed an iterative deployment schedule for improvements to the functionality and the content. And so we were looking at, you know, areas where the bot was getting confused or areas where the bot was not able to provide an answer. 
so we can, we can train and, and retrain different user intents, we called them. Okay. And uh, yeah, we were doing it in both English and French. The, the bot is bilingual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so um, that was a really unique experience too. We also looked at things like the user interface. Uh, we were very focused on accessibility, making sure that individuals using technologies like screen readers, for instance, would be able to get the same experience that um, anyone would, would normally get. Sure. So are you still doing that then or is that finished now for you? Yeah, I left that position in December of last year okay. um, and I moved to an organization focused on artificial intelligence research and that's called the Vector Institute out of Toronto. One of the founders was Dr. Hinton, Jeff Hinton. Hmm. He focused his career and research on deep learning, which is the big deal in machine learning. <laughs> uh, a, there's a many subsets of machine learning and, and deep learning is one of them. So you'll have neural nets and these kind of black box models where there's an input and there's an output and we don't necessarily know how the algorithm arrived where it did. Yeah, okay. It's a really impressive field in machine learning where they were seeing some incredible results. And the Research Institute was founded to support economic development in Canada because hmm. we're really good at training people in Canada and then <laughs> yes. having people stay. And, and then they go and, to the States. <laughs> exactly. And to start a company and, and bring all of that great brain power we have into the economic side of mm. Canadian life. So the Institute was there to work closely with small and medium businesses. We worked with large corporations. We had student internships and, and we a lot of scholarship programs. I got to work in the technical education team. So we were working with professionals to help them upskill. And one of the courses that I worked on focused on identifying and mitigating bias in your models because yeah. you know these models are going to be used in real life. And if they're trained on biased data, which you know, this data is generated by biased humans. Exactly, yeah. And so it's important to measure, track, and mitigate risks associated with bias. How do you get around that? Do you have to just track it a case at a time kind of thing? Yeah, there's different ways you can do it. The first thing we were focused on was awareness of all the different ways that bias can creep in. And we, we look at specific models and take that kind of at a case-by-case -case basis. So an example might be a computer vision model. And you know, if it's recognizing faces, does it recognize a certain gender more often mm -hmm. and more accurately? And what are the implications of that? Does it recognize a certain race more accurately? Yeah. What about someone who's wearing a headscarf? You know, there's a lot of different ways that you can deviate from kind of training set if your training set's not diverse enough. Mm -hmm. So we were, we were looking at that awareness of the different ways it can manifest. And of course, there's also models based on text and language, right? So you have natural language tools that, again, you'd want to make sure that it didn't have bias like she is a blank, the model fills in nurse. He okay. is a blank, it fills in doctor. So you want to make sure that there's all manner of bias like that is, is tracked and mitigated. There's different ways you can do it. Some really exciting companies are building models that detect bias in other models, right? So you kind of get some meta-analysis going on there. <laughs> but there's also ways that people can do it just with testing data. So taking a subset, running it, and determining how well is it actually performing on real-world data. The training set's often broken up in specific ways to help ensure that you can test for those types of issues. Huh. Yeah, okay. It sounds like an ongoing, it sounds like a complicated process. Do you have the objective of getting to a point where kind of the AI is like almost perfect, like where it's really established? Or is it just, is it constantly going to be this ongoing evolution based on, I guess, technology and, and the humans that are building it? Yeah, I think that's a really big topic of conversation in the space. 
you get, you know, philosophy on AI, you know, is it going to be aligned with human values when it's as smart and then smarter than us? Mm. There's a really interesting TED talk by Nick Bostrom. He talks about how part of the reason why humans are apex species is because we can think at higher levels than, for example, chimpanzees. Mm. And he kind of likens the situation of artificial general intelligence being developed, which experts estimate within the next 100 years, there's like a 99% chance that's kind of like an aggregate. And some experts even believe within the next 10 years, next 20 years, next 30 years, smaller percentages of them. But when go to big AI conferences, they do polls like this to determine where do the experts see us in terms of progress. And um, that's one way that they track it. So... AGI, artificial general intelligence, is coming, and it's a matter of, is it going to treat us like we treat chimpanzees, right? Um, And that's kind of a a scarier way to look at it. I think because general intelligence is so far off right now, what we're focused on is these very specific models that do one thing, like play chess, or help self-driving cars navigate a road, or identify fraud in your bank account. They're not likely to pose much problems to society. (laughs) Mm. Um, And so, you know, those models are are always getting better and we want them to be more accurate. We want them to be less biased. Um, We want to make sure that they're as good as they can possibly be for things like self-driving cars. If an artificial intelligence, which to me feels like kind of an advanced computer, is that Mm. basically it? Or is it more than just a computing processing kind of tool even? Yes, it's all statistics-based, right? Uh You're going to get a certain number of training set data, whether it's images or text or now videos. There's lots of different things that it can be trained on, numbers. Okay. And what we're looking for is a pattern. The pattern can be really basic, like a linear regression. There's a lot of memes in the data science community about how a lot of data science is just linear regression, fitting a line to a set of data scatter plot points. But then there's also more complex models where like I said, Dr. Jeff Hinton kind of pioneered the deep learning space where these models where we don't actually know what they're doing. And then there's a bunch of models somewhere in between, right, where we have a very good grasp of the math and the, the process behind it and the more complex models that we actually don't know. And there's a whole research field in transparency and explainability of AI. And so I think, you know, it is all statistics. It's not necessarily sentient. <laughs> I think that's a big thing that people are worried about. And it's in well, it's a lot of it, science yeah. fiction movies. I know. I mean, your, your brain just, your mind goes immediately to science fiction movies and all the rest. But there's an element of truth, I think, in the writing of those movies and those stories that, you know, it could evolve that way. And so if you have an artificial intelligence created to not just know how to drive a car, but how to learn and adapt, I think is the idea, right? So as situations evolve, could it therefore then, if it can drive a car, could it learn on its own how to do other things? And I don't know why you implement that if you turn it into a robot that can now cook your meals or something. I, I don't know. But like, is this is that a logical evolution, a ironic term, I guess, an evolution to where the AI can then go, that it goes beyond its original design intention? I think the models we're building right now, I mean, I'm not the expert, but I would say not likely. Um, You know, we use AI for recommendation engines for Netflix. Is it going to gather all our data and somehow become (laughs) all-knowing and uh, omnipotent? I don't think that's likely to happen, especially because the software isn't changing. Like we've built this AI tool and the code is what the code is. And engineers are always making improvements and, and taking data figuring out what they could do better and then deploying the next version and it's better than the last. Mm -hmm. But 
because we're so focused on narrow use cases at the present moment, it's very unlikely that anything would just develop kind of a mind of its own. Mm -hmm. But there are researchers who are working on AI that teaches itself, that can write code and improve on its own software. So we're headed in that direction. And um, there's a lot of regulation talks. There's a lot of philosophy around how should that work. We want to make sure that any artificial intelligence that can train itself, you know, there might be a a reinforcement model where it's trying to maximize, optimize for something. Well, we want it to optimize for good things or what humans believe are good things, right? (laughs) One of the kind of extreme examples that I've seen thrown out there is if we tell it to optimize for a healthier earth, a healthy earth environment, well, humans are causing a lot of the issues to the environment. Well, let's get rid of humans. Right? <laughs> okay. So the AI could optimize for the wrong thing, mm. leading to consequences we didn't intend. So it's really important that artificial intelligence be aligned, that's the word that they use in the field, to human interests and, and values. And I think that as researchers are, are trying to get self-learning and self-improving artificial intelligence software going... They're very careful about what they're optimizing for and you know, running experiments on like what happens if we optimize for this instead of this. Does it change the outcome of how this software performs? So it's a, an active area of research and it is coming, but it's unlikely that your Tesla is going to kind of become sentient and take over. <laughs> well, that's good, especially Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> We know who's behind it. Uh, well, this is fascinating. I, I mean, I want to still integrate it into your story. Where do you see yourself going from here, perhaps in this field? Or if not, why would you change it? But where do you see AI and what you've been doing matching up with your, let's say, near to middle future? Yeah, I think, you know, as someone with a technical background, I've considered moving more into the data space. It's not typically something that I've enjoyed very much. Hmm the kind of prescription to go into data science is to learn Python and practice with TensorFlow and SQL and all these database tools and visualization tools and um, get really good at processing any type of data set. And I've kind of looked into it over the years and it's just not the way that I want to spend my day all day, every day. It's neat. I think it's exciting. And I love talking to people in the field, but um, for myself, I, I have never been pulled very strongly in that direction. And that's kind of a natural space where a lot of people with my background have ended up in, in finance or in tech companies doing data science. So, you know, I'm kind of reflecting on what my next steps are. And so much of what I've enjoyed doing in my career has been outreach work, the teaching and the professional development I did recently this year. I've run a code club for kids. I think that there's a lot of fun to be had in bringing things out to the public. And I've done that on a couple of occasions. So that's an option. And also, I'm really excited by the prospect of these new technologies and and the disruption that they'll cause, but also the positive change that they can bring about, I think is really exciting. And so I think the second option for me is to really lean into my consulting skills that I gained consulting with artificial intelligence and natural language tools. But I'm really personally interested in the field of quantum computing. And so I'm hoping to maybe pivot my career into consulting in a quantum computing space. So we can talk more about what quantum computing is. Please define it. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So quantum computing is in contrast to our existing computers, which are digital, and they are using binary. Right digital systems, right? So a bit is a zero or a one. It can be on or off like a light switch. Mm. 
but quantum computers are a fundamentally different computing paradigm. They aren't just a faster computer or a better computer. They are different. They're made in a completely different way on different physical principles. So instead of running voltage through a circuit board where it's just on or off, hmm. now we are, instead of using bits, we would be using something called qubits, after oh, quantum okay. bits. I've heard of that, yeah. They can either be a one or a zero or a one and a zero at the same time. Oh. So you get these really cool exponential effects of how much faster you can compute a lot of classical algorithms. And you also can solve problems that are just impossible on a, on a regular classical computer. So this increase in computation power plus this kind of new paradigm of problems we can solve are both really exciting. And of course, uh, one of the big benefits would be training AI models. So that's kind of that natural connection to my experience that I've got hmm. in optimization problems and, and fraud detection and simulations for how to generate new medicines or potentially how to catalyze fertilizer in a much more environmentally friendly way. You know, there's just a lot of applications that are going to be great. And of course, there's some that are risks that we need to mitigate with this new technology. Again, it's likely that in this decade, we will see the first commercially available quantum computer. You already have cloud-based quantum computers available from Google and IBM and Intel. Okay. But the big scary thing is uh, Shor's algorithm is a quantum algorithm that was discovered in the 90s. And it's basically a way to factor really large numbers very quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's the basis of our current encryption schemes. Oh. So all of our uh, internet traffic and financial transaction data would be open to, well, decryption, basically, just like wide open, like it might as well not even be encrypted at all um, with this new technology. So when there's a quantum computer that's powerful enough to run Shor's algorithm, then pretty much everything will be wide open. And okay. so we we have banks that are working on quantum safe cryptography. Mm -hmm. And already I've seen MasterCard producing and, and sending out new cards that have all these protections in place in anticipation of this technology becoming powerful enough. So it could be that soon. It could be very soon. And, and companies are already working on protecting data. You know, the government has to keep records for seven years. And yeah. if it's encrypted using RSA technology, which is what we use today, when quantum computers are powerful enough, they can just read all that historical data. So not only do we need to encrypt data going forward in a better way, but we need to be processing old data with new encryption schemes. So it's a, a bit of a make work project in some ways, but you know, companies are, are starting to think about this on their radar. So wow. very exciting. Yeah. So quantum computing, is it in its early days still, or is it kind of progressed to the next level? Quantum computers were first postulated mid-20th century. And so if we compare the timeline of digital computers from the first transistor that was built to the first time that we started to see commercially available digital computers, it was 50, 60 years between the technology being created and commercially used. So with quantum computers... There's been experiments and research going on for a couple decades now, and there's many companies around the world that are building prototypes. Hmm. It's technology that exists today. There are quantum computers, and they can run quantum algorithms. IBM proved in the early 2000s, I believe, that Shor's algorithm could be run in theory. Hmm. They didn't have a powerful enough computer to really <laughs> run it on the size of data that we're looking at with you know, financial transactions, but they proved it could be done. And that really sparked a lot of people moving in the direction of 
okay, can we build one too? Let's be the first to do it. Let's build the one with the most qubits, the most powerful quantum computer. And so people have moved in that direction. So right now, the field is still very much in a prototype phase. And we are seeing companies that have created a quantum computer with a couple dozen qubits, a couple hundred qubits, but the holy grail is a million qubit quantum system. So it would be many quantum computers linked together to run a million qubit computation. And we're thinking within the next 10 years or so, that's likely. But right now, it's still in the process of overcoming a lot of these physical challenges and engineering-based challenges. So qubits are very finicky. They're hard to control because we're harnessing the power of quantum physics at a very, very small level. And so you have you know, lasers and electromagnetic fields and all okay. of these microwave technologies. It's the way that a, an old computer from the 50s took up a whole room. Yeah. That's what a quantum computer looks like today. It's just oh, yeah. a, a whole physics laboratory of tech equipment and computers and wires for just a few qubits at a time. Right. And so Uh, We need to scale this technology. We need to make sure that some of the qubits are more resilient to their environment. They're very sensitive to disturbances, everything from jitters. You know, if you have like a subway train running under the building, it could shake the experiment enough to disrupt the computer. Um, You would have even cosmic background radiation from space can change and influence some of the states inside the computer. So there's a lot to overcome in a a physical sense, like the engineering-wise, to make these systems stable. What kind of energy do these things require? It sounds like it must take a tremendous amount of energy to power it. Yeah, I mean, comparable to a a modern-day supercomputer, Mm -hmm. like I would put that on the same order of magnitude. It's going to be, right now, I guess, on a bit-by-bit basis or bit-qubit-by-qubit basis. (laughs) Quantum computers probably take more energy, but they're working on making everything more efficient as they're also working on making them more stable and fault tolerant, they call it. Yeah, interesting. So when you, when you think of your options for your career and so on, do you find you're more drawn to being self-employed and basically kind of finding your path? Or are you still drawn to the stability of a regular job, but maybe something, of course, is challenging, but then in turn, maybe something you only do for a year or two at a time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really my challenge, right? Mm. Is I, I think in the past, I felt that that was a, an issue that I needed to overcome. Like, why can't I stay yeah. doing something for more than two years? <laughs> but um, really, I think there is a common thread between a lot of what I do. And so, yeah, the, the challenge of will I find something long term or not? I'm trying to consciously let go of that mm. and just move to the next exciting thing. And yeah, I think to me right now, the areas that I'm interested in, artificial intelligence and quantum computing, it's fairly difficult to do anything on your own. These are really big endeavors that take teams and really smart people doing really you know exciting things. For me right now, I would be looking to be involved with existing organizations, you know, either startup accelerators in the space or maybe some quantum computing companies themselves maybe a big organization like Google or IBM working on their quantum team. I think those would be really great positions for me where I could leverage my consulting skills and my my business acumen, um, but also my technical background. Yeah. Do you have a timeline for that then? Like as we get into the new year and where you'd like to be, I don't know, six months from now? Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping to find my next role in the new year. Huh. I know the economy is a little bit crazy right now, which might make things a little bit challenging, but with uncertainty also comes a lot of really unique opportunities too. So um, I'm hopeful that in the the next six months, you'll find me hopefully in an exciting position in the the quantum space. Nice. 
And what are you doing in the meantime? Do you have, um, are you interested in blogging or even podcast or anything like that to, you know, explore some ideas, share the things you've learned and make those other connections and networking? Yeah, I, I did start a little bit of writing online this year. I'm hoping to make that more of a consistent effort in the new year. I've got some plans in place for that. And uh, yeah, I think just I did experience some burnout during the pandemic. And this is a nice yeah. season of my life where I'm able to do a bit of rest and recovery. Yeah, I've, I've really been enjoying kind of getting in touch with some of my hobbies and interests again. Um, I, I ride horses and yeah. uh I make soups and, and practice calligraphy and nice. read lots of books. So it's uh, definitely been a great time for me, just relaxing and uh, maybe decompressing is the right word from from a couple of years of the pandemic. Working from home was tough for me. Um, I, I would be eager to try a hybrid workplace. Yeah. And anyway, that kind of work, uh, it sounds pretty hands-on. You'd have to be in a, in a lab or something like that to really do the tests, to, do the, to make the observations, right? Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of exciting work going on in the laboratories around the country. And I think even because this is such an exciting area in artificial intelligence and quantum computing, there's a lot of conferences going on, a lot of face-to-face collaboration to make this move as quickly as it's moving. Yeah. Has there ever been a challenge to balance some of your interests and the hobbies and so on with the professional outlook, the career focus, you know, has that been a challenge for you too in trying to find the time and give enough time to the things that you want to do? Absolutely. That's a really good question because it's something that I have been very conscious of in the last few years. So when I first joined the working world, I definitely let a lot of my hobbies go by the wayside. And honestly, even as a student too, (laughs) I wasn't reading as much and I had actually stopped horseback riding and there's just a lot of changes in my life. And I I figured, well, I'm focusing on my education or I'm focusing on getting into the working world right now. That's my focus and it's fine. I'll, I'll come back to things eventually. And I found that it didn't actually just happen naturally. Like I had to be very intentional about bringing some of my passions back into my life. And a big part of that was slowing down. I I think taking a step back from working and just diving and putting everything into work. I maybe had a time where work became a big part of my identity and that was kind of all that I had for a while. And I, I didn't like that. That wasn't for me. So I had to be more intentional about balancing my life and and knowing that even though career is important to me, it's not the most important thing. And to maybe make my actions and the way I was spending my time reflect those values. And so I was more in sync with myself. And it took a concerted effort (laughs) over the last few years. And the pandemic helped. I think everyone had a bit of a introspection during those two (laughs) years, but that we were in and out of lockdowns in Canada anyway. Hmm. But yeah, I think it's a an area that I'm still working on to this day. And right now, not currently working. (laughs) I am definitely experiencing a heavier lean towards other areas of my life, which is good in some ways too. So when I go back to work next year, I'm very eager to put some of my new strategies into place so I can have a more balanced future going forward. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, it's a good way of putting it. You, You really do have to be intentional about making these things happen. Mm-hmm. I'm the same, you know, it's that you assume you're going to have the time or just get back to doing whatever it is, uh, playing music or reading more, et cetera. And, and it just doesn't happen unless you really make the effort, you know, especially as we're busy with work and then family and kids and so on. And like uh, the time just flies by here. It's already the end of 2022. So <laughs> for sure, I've found I really like talking to people who are doing that, who are 
actively trying to shape their lives and their calendars around what matters to them. Yeah. And uh, I know some strategies that people have come up with. I love reading those conversations in the putty verse and all over the internet, I'm seeing that conversation happen more and more. People aren't as interested in career as an identity, right? I, I'm, I'm part of a, a broader movement of people who are focused more on, on the things that they find meaningful. So I'm in good company. There's lots of people on this same journey. Yep. And uh, one of my favorite uh, habits, journaling, has helped me to just be more reflective and to assess, like, how did I do today? Did I actually spend my time in the way that I was hoping to? And if not, why not? And kind of thinking through those things. Even just having habits, like I, I've read more than 30 books a year since the start of the pandemic just by having a daily reading habit. And it can be as little as five minutes, but as long as I pick up my book, I'm happy, right? It's, it was kind of a way to, an obligation to myself that helped me to maintain some of the things I liked. So finding little strategies like that and what's working for people and what, what isn't working, I love those conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's nice. Well, it's been uh, great to get to know you and learn uh, just scratching the surface on quantum computing and uh, <laughs> artificial intelligence. I, I know we've got some listeners who will love this. They'll, feel free to reach out to Melissa, of course, if you have questions. And you know what you should do? I don't know if this has been done. You should do like, a, if you want, a huddle that chats about some of these topics, you know, I mean, especially if you have maybe some like-minded people who studied a bit, who kind of know the, the lingo in a bit, like you could really get into some interesting conversation about, say, quantum computing with people who can really participate in that kind of conversation, you know, that would be an interesting huddle. People can then, like someone like me, I wouldn't really know much what to say, but I'd love to listen. It's like, it's like if you had a a TED talk or one of these things where there's a panel discussion, right? You know, and like you could have an audience of us who are watching you and a couple of people chat about one of these topics, right? And that'd be interesting to hear your observations on it. But the fact that it doesn't have to be some big name, big scale event, uh, you know, with big corporate sponsors, all that. We can do this in the puttyverse with the fascinating people here who are very well educated, who really know what they're talking about in these things. And that would be a really interesting event to do. Yeah, I think that sounds really exciting. And yeah. you're right, like there's so many incredible people in the verse and I keep finding more and more people who've got uh, similar experiences. I yeah. just recently was reading a post and looked the person up and like, oh, they're a physicist too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we've definitely got a lot of really curious people and I think that leads to some interesting conversations and a lot of deep knowledge on stuff like this. So I would love to participate. Yeah, for sure. Well, we'll keep that in mind. All right. So uh, keep in touch and um, maybe we'll have you back again and see where, uh, what you're up to then. Sounds great. And thanks so much uh, to you and, and to Vanessa for this exciting feature of the Puttyverse. I've really enjoyed listening to the multipod. So thanks. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.